You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. Today we'll be beginning a new series in this book of the Bible, 1 Timothy. If you were here with us last year when we were still meeting at our old location, you'll know that this isn't technically a new series. I actually began this series last fall in September 2019. We put it on pause shortly before Christmas and then we had kind of a, a New Year's series on Bible reading and then we transitioned here to our new location and we started our Gospel Foundation series, which we recently wrapped up. Um, after consulting with our leadership team, we uh, discerned that it was the right time to return to 1 Timothy and to uh, finish our time through this wonderful letter. Uh, the title of this series is Gospel Culture in God's Household. Now, many of us know about gospel doctrine, but what do we mean when we use this terminology of gospel culture. Well, J.I. Packer defines culture as follows. Culture means the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions held in common. You could say that that culture is the outward expression of inner beliefs that are shared within a community. It's what a community does as a result of what that community believes. So if a church believes the gospel, then it should affect the public lifestyle that is expressed in that community. Imagine walking into the kitchen while there is fresh bread baking in the oven. You could say that if the doctrine is the bread, the culture is the smell. You, you can smell the bread before you've tasted it. In the same way, people should be able to, to sense the gospel in a community, uh, in a church, before they've ever heard the gospel proclaimed. That's what gospel doctrine is meant to produce. It's meant to produce a gospel culture that attracts people to gospel doctrine the gospel message summarized by the simple message that Christ died for sinners. Both are equally important. Doctrine and culture. Ray Ortland writes, when the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. But there are no shortcuts to getting there. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. Now, many of us, particularly if you come from a reformed background, will know of the recent sad phenomenon of churches that have very weak doctrine. You can call them liberal churches, or perhaps they're not churches at all. They've become something completely different entirely. But we also need to be aware of the danger of having the right doctrine, but the wrong culture. That's just as dangerous. That's just as harmful to a church. A church can have healthy doctrine, but also have a sick community. And that is why we must pay close attention 
to how our doctrine is shaping our culture. And that leads to 1 Timothy. In chapter three, Paul writes the purpose of this letter. He, he writes to Timothy and to us why he composed this letter that's, that we know as 1 Timothy. He says in verses 14 to 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In these verses, Paul calls the church the household of God. And just as every household has its own culture, the household of God is meant to have its own culture. The the culture, this public lifestyle that expresses shared convictions held in common, it's reflected in how we speak to one another. It's reflected in how we spend our money. It's reflected in, in what we are most passionate about. It is reflected in how we respond to newcomers and visitors who are new to our church. The things that we do reveal the things that we value. Anyone can say that they believe this or that, but what we truly believe is revealed in the culture of our homes. And the church is God's household. And as God's household, God is the head. He is the head of this household. And therefore, what what our church values should mirror and imitate and find its direction from what God values. And of course, what God values is revealed in his word. That's why I've titled this series, Gospel Culture in God's Household. Over the next several months, we're gonna begin this journey of studying 1 Timothy and learning how the gospel shapes our practice, what gospel culture is meant to look like. And my hope and prayer is that this series will further equip us as a church to to practice what we preach, to, to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. We're gonna begin with chapter one. If again, if you were here last fall, you'll know that I already preached four sermons on this single chapter. And rather than go through everything again, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna condense those four sermons into one. You might be wondering, wow, how long is this sermon gonna be? Well, I can guarantee you it will not be the length of four sermons. In fact, this one sermon is shorter than any of those individual sermons, at least by word count. So uh, hopefully uh, it will still serve us. If you're interested in kind of a deeper exposition and application of this chapter, I encourage you to go back to our podcast or to our website. You can re-listen to those sermons. But for now, we're gonna kind of zoom out a little bit, take a bird's eye view of this chapter. We won't be able to drop into every single detail of this text because we have so many verses to cover. Um, But I trust that this will be to your benefit and to the benefit of our church. So let's together read these verses. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to follow along. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. 1 Timothy chapter one, verses one to 20. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The title of this message is Three Principles for Pursuing Gospel Culture. Three principles for pursuing gospel culture. Those three principles are as follows. First, truth and love. Second, mercy and humility. Third, war and the conscience. Let's begin with truth and love. Now, verses one to two tell us that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. And he describes Timothy in verse two as my true child in the faith. Paul had many close relationships over his years of ministry, but but none of those co-laborers in Christ were as close to him as Timothy. Verse three tells us that Paul left Timothy at Ephesus. But why? Why would Timothy part with his true child in the faith? Would it be to plant more churches? Would it be to entrust Timothy with his first pastorate? Would it be to train up more pastors? Was it for some kind of strategic reason? Well, verse three gives us the answer. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any 
different doctrine. The reason why Paul departed with his true child in the faith and left him in Ephesus was in order to address false teaching. And if you study church history, what you'll see is that the greatest threat to the church has never been persecution. It's always been false teaching. Persecution hurts, persecution is frightening, but if you, if you look at how the church has developed over the centuries, and perhaps even if you look at how the church is doing in so-called closed countries where you can be persecuted for going to church or holding the Christian faith, you see that persecution often leads to the flourishing of the church. In fact, the church father Tertullian said, the blood of the Christians is the seed. It is the seed. God brings forth massive fruit through the death of his precious saints. Jesus himself said in John chapter 12, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We see that on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was sowing the seeds of the church. It was through Christ's death that we have life. And now, as we follow Christ, some of our brothers and sisters die for their faith in order to bring life to others. Now, false teaching, false teaching is different because false teaching doesn't just kill the grain of wheat. It poisons it. It fundamentally changes the nature of that seed so that the fruit that it bears is rotten and corrupt. That is why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. False teaching is the most grave issue that the church has ever faced or will face. Now, the practical question at this point is, what does that mean? What kind of applications does it have when it comes to church unity? Does it mean that we separate from anyone or any church or any denomination that does not hold exactly the same doctrines that we do? Well, the answer is no. Because not all doctrines are equally important. Not all are equally essential to our faith. There are what you could call first order doctrines. First order doctrines, things like the Trinity, the justification by faith, the eternal deity of Christ, the, the, the physical incarnation of Jesus Christ and the physical resurrection of Christ. If people or churches or denominations deviate from those doctrines, then the right thing to do is to separate. But there are also second order doctrines, doctrines that the Bible teaches that are important and they have a very real tangible effect on how we do church how we function as a local body of believers. But they may or may not be reasons to separate. These are things like the nature of church governance or whether the spiritual gifts continue or ceased in the apostolic age. In some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, we can differ on these issues without separating. Now, this is important because if you're a Christian, I mean, obviously you're gonna encounter people who disagree with you. And if we separated with everyone who disagreed with us, we would all be churches unto ourselves. 
You could say there would be no churches at all because we'd just be gathering by ourselves. You are bound to find people who disagree with you. And we're, to some extent, we're encountering that with the controversy over how does the church respond to the COVID-19 regulations of our government? Reasonable, Bible-believing Christians can disagree on what we should do and how we should respond. Should we wear masks? Should we stop meeting if the government asks us not to meet? Reasonable Bible-believing Christians can disagree without separating because of those issues. But the other reason why, as Christians, we need to understand this, this ordering of first and second order doctrines is because we, we should not just be concerned about truth. We should not just be concerned about truth. We should be concerned about what truth is meant to produce, which is love. Paul says in verse five, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of this charge to, to silence the false teachers, to, to leave Timothy in Ephesus to address false teaching, the aim of that charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's not miss this. Paul's aim in putting doctrine in order is love. Not love at the expense of truth, but love as a result of truth. The reason why Paul is so concerned about false teaching is because it doesn't produce love. Philip Ryken writes, wherever doctrine is the purest, love must be the highest. That was Paul's aim and it ought to be our aim as well. Truth that produces love. Gospel doctrine that produces gospel culture. Because, listen, if, if people don't love one another, it doesn't matter how many programs you have, it doesn't matter how many people you're attracting, it doesn't matter what creeds and confessions you are reciting. If you don't have love, you've missed the whole point. But, but true gospel-produced biblical love comes from sound doctrine. Not at the expense of sound doctrine, but out of sound doctrine. If we are to love one another, we must care about sound doctrine. And we must learn how to build our doctrine on the central doctrine of the gospel. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's one of the things that Paul's trying to do in verses 8 to 11. In verse 11, you'll see that he's talking about the law that is the, the moral law of God captured and expressed in the Old Testament and summarized in the 10 Commandments, he says that even the law is meant to be understood and applied in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. What Paul is saying is that because of the gospel, Christians no longer relate to the law the same way that they did when they were apart from Christ. Verse nine says, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. My friends, if you're a Christian today, you are no longer one of the lawless and disobedient. You are one of the just. By virtue of Christ's righteousness being imputed to you by faith, you are one of the just. And the law is no longer laid down for you. It still guides you, it still informs you. We, we still seek by the grace of God to obey the law, but we are no longer under its dominion. 
Romans 7 verse 6 puts it plainly. It says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The gospel has changed everything, including how we relate to the moral law of God. And unless we read the Bible through the lens of the gospel, we are bound to commit the same errors as the false teachers in Ephesus. Now in verse 11, Paul says that he has been entrusted with the gospel. God has entrusted Paul with this sacred responsibility to guard the gospel, to steward the gospel, and to spread the gospel. And Paul calls this gospel the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Let's not forget that. The, The gospel is not essentially about us. The gospel is essentially about God. It is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It reveals to us the the pure, holy, merciful nature of God. The God who does not leave any sin unpunished and the God who places our punishment upon his beloved son. This is the gospel that Paul has been entrusted with. And this has a profound effect on how Paul sees himself and how he sees other people. And this leads to our second point, mercy and humility. In verse 12, Paul expresses his gratitude to, to, to Jesus. Gratitude to Jesus for giving him strength and appointing him to the service of Christ. And he's so grateful because he remembers who he used to be. In verse 13, he describes himself as though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Paul's saying, I used to be an angry, violent man. I used to be a man clothed with false piety, doing things allegedly in the name of God, but really doing it to serve my own selfish ego. He was all about truth and not about love because he did not yet believe the gospel. But then in verse 13, he writes, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. God showed Paul mercy. He he spared Paul from the just punishment and wrath that he deserved. And why is that? Well, we know that ultimately, it's because of God's sovereign choice. It's not because of anything Paul did. It's not because of anything Paul was. It's all because of God's sovereign choice. But here, Paul adds that it was also a factor in God's sovereign choice was because Paul acted ignorantly in unbelief. He's saying that his actions as an insolent opponent, a persecutor of the church, they were done in ignorance. He actually thought that he was doing the right thing. Paul's pointing out, and this is a consistent pattern throughout scripture, that there is a difference between intentional sins and unintentional sins. Sins that we commit when we we do something wrong that we know is wrong. And sins that we commit 
because we are yet ignorant. Both attract God's punishment, but God responds to them differently. Paul had received mercy. And when God shows mercy, he doesn't hold back. He writes in verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Just, just picture that. Just meditate on that word overflow. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. My, my friends, God is not stingy. He, he does not have a limited reservoir of grace that he needs to carefully distribute so that everyone gets a little piece of it. God's mercy overflows to each and every one of us because it is infinite, it is endless, it is boundless, it has no limitations. He, he pours and pours his grace into the hearts of sinful men and women until we overflow. And out of that overflow come faith and love. If we walk by faith, if we act in love, it is not because faith and love originated in ourselves. It is because they overflow to us through Jesus Christ. It says the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What is in Christ has been put into us as his grace overflows into our hearts. And so what we see has happened in Paul's life is that this man who was once full of hatred and unbelief is now full of the faith and love that are not in himself, but are in Christ Jesus. That's what God does when he shows mercy to someone. He doesn't just save us from his wrath. He transforms us into radically new people. We are united to Christ in order to become more like Christ as Christ takes what is in him and puts it in us. Now, how did this change Paul? And how ought it to change us? Well, Paul shows us in verse 15. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What Paul is saying to us in this verse, what he's revealing to us is that God's mercy, when it comes to us, it doesn't just lead us to a deeper knowledge of God as gracious and merciful. It leads us to a deeper knowledge of ourselves as sinners. That the gospel produces people who are humbled by their own sinfulness. Wherever Paul went, didn't matter who he was with, didn't matter where he was going, he remembered that there was no greater sinner in the room than him. If there was an award that you could receive for being the first place sinner, the best at sinning, Paul is saying, I would win that award every time. I am the foremost. And notice that it's not because of who he used to be. It's because of who he is. He says, I am the foremost. Christ came to save sinners of whom I am. Not I was, I am. Paul is very aware of his current depravity. Even though he's not an insolent opponent or a persecutor, a blasphemer any longer, he said, I'm still 
the foremost of sinners. He is so aware of his sinfulness that it crushes his pride and brings him to his knees in humility. He no longer believes that he is better than anyone, not a single person. Instead, he believes that everyone is better than him. And listen, when he says in verse 15 that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, he's saying this this phrase, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, this, this is a saying. It's well established in the church, whether in a catechism or in a hymn, it was a common saying in the church. And, and he's saying, this is deserving of full acceptance and I am accepting it for myself. This is true of me. And it is a saying that is deserving of your acceptance. It is a trustworthy saying for you to adopt. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost is not just Paul's testimony, it is mine. And it is yours. It is the testimony of all who have received the overflowing grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. Well, you might say, well, how can we all be the worst? How can we all win first place? Someone's got to win first place, and then maybe I'm fifth place. Well, John Stott so helpfully writes Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. That's what the gospel does. It makes us more aware of our own sins than the sins of others. And when we're aware of our own sins and less aware of the sins of others, we can't help but say, I am the foremost. And so, if you are tempted to believe that the world would be a better place if only people were more like you, and if you're honest, Maybe you have thoughts like that sometimes. You must remember that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Or on the flip side of the coin, if the next time you're tempted to believe that that God could never forgive you of your sins, you've done something so horrible, so unforgivable that God will always hold you at arm's length, remember that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. And he didn't come to save those who only sin once in a while but are generally good people. He came to save the worst, the foremost, the first place sinners of the world. Sinners like Paul who hated God and persecuted the church. And Paul tells us in verse 16 that this is one of the reasons why God set his sovereign electing gaze upon Paul. It was so that we could know that God can save anyone. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's testimony of conversion of receiving God's mercy, of God's grace overflowing to him with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It remains a powerful comfort to sinners burdened by a guilty conscience. You know, a few weeks ago, one of my kids, I won't tell you which one, was burdened by a guilty conscience. And he was saying to me, God could never forgive me of this sin. And I tried to tell him, well, 
daddy's a worse sinner than you. And God has forgiven me. But he didn't believe me. He's like, daddy, you're not a worse sinner than me. I said, well, are you a worse sinner than Paul? Have you killed anyone? Do you hate the church? Do you oppose God as an insolent opponent? He's like, no, I'm not that bad. Well, if God saved Paul, he could save anyone. In the salvation of sinners, Christ has put his perfect patience on display. Perfect patience. What a comfort. Christ's patience is not flawed. It is not limited. It is not reserved. It is perfect towards the repentant sinner. And that should lead us to erupt in worship like it does with Paul in verse 17. He, he just has this moment where, where his orthodoxy leads to doxology. His doctrine leads to worship. And he proclaims to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. And by the way, he's talking about Jesus there. So if anyone ever says, well, the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God, just point them to this verse where the New Testament believers were proclaiming that he is the king of the ages. He is immortal, invisible, the only God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Lastly, and more quickly, our third principle of gospel culture, war and the conscience, verse 18. Paul returns to this original charge to Timothy to guard sound doctrine. And as he returns to this charge, Paul reminds Timothy of these prophecies that were made about him. Now, we don't know what these prophecies were. They're not recorded for us in scripture. But we do know that they they were spoken over Timothy to encourage him and to equip him to wage the good warfare, to fight the fight and to not give up to wage the good warfare. My, my friends, that is what the Christian life is meant to look like. It's meant to look like war. It's, it's meant to look like fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The, the world is, is pulling us away from the heart of Christ. The, the flesh hardens our hearts against God as we sin. The devil is tempting us, deceiving us so that we stop trusting in the goodness of God. We must wage war against the enemies of our souls. And that is one of the purposes of prophecy. The New Testament gift of prophecy, which we, can, we believe continues today, it is meant to shake us out of our sleepy complacency. Now in the West, we are so prosperous and so devoid of suffering that we're not accustomed to thinking about life as warfare. We're not accustomed to spiritual warfare. We are accustomed to spiritual coasting. I mean, why wage war against sin when there's so much to watch online? Why resist the world when your neighbors might think that you're strange? Why resist the devil when he just seems so absent and irrelevant to our daily lives? My friends, we must wage war. And we must remind ourselves that we live in a spiritual war that if we do not fight in, we will lose. 
That is where the regular spiritual disciplines become so important. It is by the ordinary means of grace that we wage the good warfare. Now, if you, if you spend time thinking about the Lord's Prayer, you'll notice what Jesus wants us to remember every day. It's, the Lord's Prayer is meant to be a daily prayer. That's why he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Pray for this day's bread, not next day's, not next week's, but this day. And that's informative because it shows us the kinds of things Jesus wants to be foremost in our minds as we begin our days. And what, what does he teach us to pray? Well, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Evil is a constant presence in our lives, not only out there in the world, but in here in our fallen, broken hearts. And we must wage war if we are to experience victory. Philip Ryken writes, the people of God have never been able to simply rest in the faith. They have always had to fight for it. We fight for faith by regular prayer and Bible reading. We fight for faith through fellowship with other believers. We fight for faith by faithful attendance at Sunday worship for the Lord's Supper and the preaching of the word. None of these things are rocket science. You know, none of them are flashy or impressive, but they are powerful because they are God's ordained means of transformation in our lives. Now, Paul, he focuses on two weapons in verse 19. He says that Timothy is to wage war by holding faith and holding a good conscience. Hold faith and hold a good conscience. When we hold faith, that's why we read the Bible, we pray, we go to church. We, we wanna grow in our faith. We wanna cultivate our trust in God. We're, we're familiar with that. We need to walk by faith, not by sight. But the second is perhaps less common. And perhaps it's not even on your radar. He says that we are to wage war by holding on to a good conscience. And this means two things. First, it means that you never do what you know is wrong. Second, you are to define what is wrong by the standard of scripture. Both of these requirements are equally important. If you are to hold a good conscience, to follow the first, that is to just follow your conscience, and not the second, that is to not define your conscience by the standard of scripture, is to follow a faulty compass. A conscience that isn't shaped by scripture is going to lead you astray. It's leading you in the wrong direction. A conscience can only be good if it's calibrated by the standard of scripture. And when it is, then you must follow it. It tells you to go this way, you, you go that way. Don't be like me when I set directions in Google Maps and then I completely ignore them, okay? You find the directions and you follow them because you know that what has set the direction for you is wiser, it has more knowledge than you, and you are better to trust that than to trust yourself. Now, this means not lying about your children's age at a restaurant in order to save a few dollars. It does. This means not withholding some of your income on your tax returns. This means not turning on that show when you know that it will tempt you to lust. We must hold a good conscience because if we don't, we may make a shipwreck of our faith. That's what Paul says in verse 19. He says, by rejecting this, 
Some have made a shipwreck of their faith. And this is singular. It's not by rejecting these, faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, by rejecting a good conscience, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. It was by doing what they knew was wrong that some had made a shipwreck of their faith. And this wasn't theoretical for Paul. It was, it was a lived experience. Verse 20, he says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul and Timothy knew these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who failed to hold on to a good conscience. And as a result of that, they had fallen away from grace and had been disciplined out of the church. That's usually how it happens when people turn away from Christ. It starts from doing what is wrong. You, you do what is wrong before you believe what is wrong. Kent Hughes, he writes, when morals slip, doctrine ebbs and the fight is soon lost. Conscious disobedience will kill our spiritual life. My friends, that is, that is why we need Christ because all of us, all of us sin against our conscience. All of us do what we know is wrong. All of us fail to do what is right. The enemies of our souls are just too strong for us. We cannot hold on to faith and to a good conscience by our own strength. We are completely inadequate to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare by ourselves. This is a spiritual war that requires spiritual resources. And we have all of those resources in Christ. Grace overflows to us with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so today, if you have never been joined to Christ, you have never come to him, you've never been united to him by faith, you have never received this overflowing grace, the word of God to you, the invitation of God himself is that you would come to him and receive. Now you may think, I, I, could, I could never have faith or I could never love people the way the Bible calls people to love and you'd be right. You'd be right, you don't have what it takes. But the good news is that the faith and love that you need are not found in yourself but in Jesus Christ himself. Come to him, receive his grace, and find in him the only one who can ever be described as one who has perfect patience. If you're a follower of Christ, let me give you three brief points of application. First, generally you could say people divide into two main camps. Either you're, you're typically in the truth camp or you're in the love camp. If you're a truth person, it means you're the kind of person who likes to spend your free time reading online debates, engaging in online disputations. You, you love reading theology, perhaps. You wanna study truth, you wanna hold sound doctrine. Those are good things. If you're a truth person, I encourage you to become more of a love person because the aim of truth is love. If you have truth without love, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, you're nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. But if you have truth in love, a love that flows out of truth, then you will live a 
grace-filled life and show the world what it looks like to really follow Jesus. I encourage you to spend less time online and more time with people, especially more people who disagree with you. Have people who are different from you, who hold different beliefs into your home. Get to know them, build relationships with them, learn how to love. You know, we know that the Bible teaches that we are to love our enemies. We're like, yeah, yeah, we'll, I'll, I'll do that when it com- comes time, but can we love those who disagree with us? I mean, it starts with that at least. If we are to love our enemies, we must at least be able to love those who disagree with us. And that means pursuing relationship to pursue peace so far as it depends on you. Grow in love if you are inclined to truth. And if you are inclined to love, not truth, that is you find reading tedious, you find reciting the Nicene Creed dusty. You're just like, what, what is the point? It's all about love. It's all about relationships. It's all about community. Well, I encourage you to become more of a truth person because biblical love comes from biblical truth. Anyone can love in a worldly way. You know, the love that you might say you have for other people, I would challenge you to consider, is that biblical love? Are you loving that person for, for God's sake and for their sake, or are you loving them for your own sake, for what you derive, what benefits you receive? Biblical love is faithful and self-sacrificing. Worldly love is fickle and selfish. And so learn to love by devoting yourself to truth. Don't just read practical how-to books. Read, read theology. Study the word of God. Find context to grow in the knowledge of truth so that you will also grow in love. That's the first application. Truth people become love people. Love people become truth people. The truth and love would reign in God's household. Second, I encourage you to regularly, regularly rehearse this trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. When you begin your private time of prayer, when you pray with your family around the meal table, say those words. Remind yourself that that is true of you. And with time, I think you will find that two things are cultivated from that regular practice. Humility and joy, ironically. You might think, well, I'm just putting myself down. I'm gonna feel wretched about myself. I'm the worst sinner. How can that be helpful? How can that produce joy? Well, humility comes because of the greatness of your sin and joy comes because of the greatness of your savior. The more conviction we feel about our sin, the more comfort we will receive from the gospel and that will make us humble and joyful people. Lastly, lastly, I urge you, do not ignore your conscience. Listen to your conscience. Follow your conscience as scripture shapes your conscience. Now we live in a time when pop psychology tells you that your conscience doesn't need to be listened to. Your conscience needs to be silenced. Pop psychology will say, you feel bad about yourself? 
Well, then just boost your self-esteem. Think high thoughts about yourself. Remember how great you are. My friends, that is the devil talking. The remedy to your conviction over sin is not a higher view of yourself, it is a higher view of Christ. And the only way to have a high view of Christ is to have a low view of your own sinfulness. Your conscience is a gift. It is a gift from God to steer us in the right direction and to remind us of our need for Christ. Don't silence it with therapeutic platitudes. Listen to your conscience, follow your conscience, and when you fail to abide by your conscience, bring it to Christ. He alone can cleanse the guilty conscience and empower you to follow it. He will take your guilty burdens away and he will give you the strength to hold fast to faith and to a good conscience so that you will not fall away. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that this church and every faithful church in the world belongs to you. It is your household. You are the head of this household. We thank you for giving us directions, instructions, encouragement, warnings in your word to show us what church is meant to look like. And so we pray for your grace. We pray for more and more grace to overflow into our lives and into our church that we may thrive in faith and love as we build our lives and our church body on the sound doctrine of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.